Hey, deserving listeners, I have a bunch of emails here related to negativity. So let's answer your emails, patron emails related to negativity. This first email is from anonymous upper tier patron. She writes, I've been in individual private practice as a therapist for a couple of years now. I just got two negative reviews online from the same person. I let this person know that I couldn't provide them with the concrete thing that they were asking for when they called me for services. But I did say that I would was happy to work with them on their other issues. The person ended up not working with me. So just chiming in here, just so everyone understands that this therapist had someone call her and the therapist said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't really provide that service, but I'd be happy to you know, provide services that I can provide. And then the prospective client said, no, I, you know, I'm going to move on. Um, going on with the email. Their recent scathing and vile review offered many judgments on my character as well as my mental health. The site says I cannot deactivate, deactivate my profile unless I stop practicing. I have a good idea on what I can do logistically to deal with this issue, but I wanted to get your take on how to deal with this emotionally. My questions are, do you have any similar experiences dealing with negative reviews or feedback? Could you please share what it was like for you? End of email. Yeah, this is terrible. It feels really bad. Therapists are striving to, at the very least, be neutral for clients, but they're really trying to be useful. They're really trying to be accepted, particularly early early practice such as yourself. Um, you've been in practice for a couple of years now, particularly private practice, right? Because you're completely on your own and you, you, it's your brand. It's your business. It's like opening a restaurant and on Yelp, you only have two reviews and they're all negative. It just, it just feels really bad, right? So, you know, I totally get it. And just a little tip out there for those of you who have therapists, if you want to, of course, you might want to fill out a positive review of your therapist online because it's actually unethical for therapists to ask you to do that. So a therapist should never and probably will never ask you, hey, could you review me online? Because it's unethical because they're in a position where they might you might feel pressured or something. So it's one of the few businesses where it's literally unethical for them to ask you to do that, yet they really want you to. So let me speak on behalf of all therapists. Please do that, not only for their self-esteem, of which you could really help, but two, if they ever do get one of these renegade, uh, shall we say, fraudulent negative reviews, your positive reviews will protect their business, literally. I've had this happen. One of my supervisees a number of years ago had this happen to her. She had someone who was, shall we say, not mentally well and left her a very scathing, horrible review, I believe on Google. And it was the only review for her. And her private practice prior to that moment was thriving. And she was one of the most successful postgrad supervisees I'd ever worked with. And after she had that review, her practice essentially died. And she could no longer pay her bills. So we don't know if the bad review was part of it, but it seems like a likely factor at, at, at the very least. So 
Yeah, it's horrible. It's a horrible feeling. Now, I will say that plenty of other supervisees that I've worked with have had something like this happen where an unhinged client that just wants to hurt you gets back at you through these uh, negative reviews and their practices have been fine. I actually have a current supervisee who had this happen, I don't know, six months ago and her practice is doing great. So it uh, usually it's not a big deal. Um, I think it's for a number of reasons. One is that the reviews will often appear to be unhinged, and if someone were to read it, they would be like, "Oh, I don't, I don't know if I really respect that person's opinion given the way that they're talking." Also, most people, although they they might Google their therapist a little bit, they might not go deep into the googling, if that makes any sense. But you're asking, you know, how do you deal with this? Well, the main thing for you, anonymous upper tier patron, is to have a mentor. I can't emphasize this enough. I talk about this often. It's not talked about enough that in many professions, particularly in psychotherapy, you need to have mentors. You, you've been in private practice for two years. I don't know what sort of experience you have before that, but at least in private practice, I would say that you're a newbie. You're really a newbie until you're, in my eyes, until you're about 10 or 15 years into a private practice or your career. I didn't, I didn't feel very confident uh, until I was about 15 years into my career. So maybe 10 years. But the point is, is that when you have a mentor, you can go to them and say, how do I deal with this? And then they can take care of you. They know your situation. They've been there before. They know how you feel about it probably and can reassure you and say, you know what? You're a good therapist. You did everything you're supposed to do. I can't tell you how how helpful that was for me in the beginning of, or really throughout my career to have mentors who I could just go to for that reassurance. Because psychotherapy is such a amorphous profession. There's so many ideas out there that are false, by the way, and so little guidance on exactly what you're supposed to do. It was one of the things that really bothered me about this profession when I first entered it was I was looking for the rules. What are you supposed to do here? And there are very few rules in psychotherapy. And I would look to the ethical codes and I'd, I'd try to decipher them. You know, these these are pretty, uh, you know, squishy ethical codes. And yeah, well, that's just how this, that's how, you know, that's best. And it is best. Anyway, so get a mentor. The other thing I'll say, you know, you said you think you can handle the logistics. You know, I might hire a lawyer and try to get that stricken from the record. It's a little weird that you have a website that you can contact and say, this person left me a review for the following reason. They never actually engaged in services with me, and they asked me to do something that I could not ethically provide. And this review makes no sense. And this and your site, by leaving this up here, might ruin my livelihood. So uh, I need you to take it down. If a lawyer were to contact them, I'm guessing they would take it down <laughs> because what's it to them, right? They, they don't care. So – uh, I, I might I might get some legal help. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, I just want to thank Colin, who is now working for the podcast. He went through all the different emails and compiled this doc of emails and from patrons asking about something negative. All right, so this person uh, is worried about negative narcissistic personality stigma. Anonymous patron writes, 
I have found that most of the internet tends to be very hateful towards narcissistic personalities. The language is so negative, in fact, even on Psychology Today, that it oftentimes makes me sad. My mom suffers from narcissistic traits, and I know she can't help it. She's always trying to be better, of course, but it's a process. The stereotyping needs to stop. I just wish everyone had your attitude towards it. Thank you for your deep dive, by the way. I have found it immensely helpful. What are some ways people can help reduce, not to mention refrain from contributing to, the cultural stigma and general negativity towards people working on their narcissistic tendencies? How can we better support struggling narcissists? End of email. Yeah, a little detail about the internet is they often will conflate narcissistic personality disorder with psychopathy or psychopathic personality disorder or sadistic personality disorder. In other words, people are being abused by people. Well, actually, let me zoom out even further. People are being harmed by other people and or they think they're being harmed. And they are going to the Internet to find an explanation. It feels better when we can diagnose people who have hurt our feelings than if we have nothing to validate us. You know, if it in lieu of actually having people support us emotionally. So let me even zoom out even further. <laughs> so I imagine all of us have been through situations where someone has really hurt our feelings. They ghosted us. They dumped us. They cheated on us. They lied to us. They hurt our feelings. They made us feel like we didn't matter in very, very profound ways. And we are crying into a pillow saying, how could this have happened to me? What, what did I do wrong? What's wrong with that person? I thought I could trust that person. Okay, I think all of us have been there, unfortunately. And then we go to the internet because that's what people do now. And there are, because all these people go to the internet, there's a lot of people out there who are looking for you to click on their things. Okay, We all understand, including me, by the way, are trying to get you to click on things because when you click on our things, then we can sell you advertisers. We can have someone else sell you ads, okay? So there's all these people on the internet trying to get you to click. And one of the things that has emerged, that's emerged over the past, I don't know, five to 10 years is connecting narcissism to that feeling. So you're, you're, you're crying, you're upset, or maybe it's ongoing. You just feel hurt on, you know, this person has been cheating on me for a long time, this kind of thing. And the... Because people, even clinicians, don't really understand personality disorders, when you're in a situation like that, it's it's very tempting or it makes sense. It's not tempting. It literally does make sense that you would think this person was selfish. The person who hurt me is selfish. They only think about themselves. They don't think about me. They don't think about other people's feelings. Okay. And the... Uh, the sort of leap that people will make is, well, it must be narcissistic personality disorder because when you don't understand narcissistic personality disorder, what it sounds like is a selfish person. And certainly narcissistic personality disorder, people can be selfish, but it's much more complicated than that. Selfishness and harm to others can involve a lot of different personality disorders or just something other than a personality disorder. The fact that someone was harmful or cheated on you or lied to you or led you on or didn't care about your feelings, there's a lot of possibilities as to why that happened. 
and many of those possibilities do not include anything in the DSM. Okay, we don't need a diagnos- We don't need a diagnosis to justify the fact that you were treated wrong. If you were treated wrong, wrongly, then we can just look at that and say, I was treated badly. I was, that person is unethical. That person treated me badly. I don't like that person. That person is evil. You can say that. You can think that. But then to take this leap into the diagnostic manual, and not only the diagnostic manual, but the personality disorder chapter, which uh, research shows, and I will tell you from personal experience, most clinicians don't even understand that chapter, particularly narcissistic personality disorder. And so- you have all these people providing these articles and videos and things and commentary uh, saying you've suffered from narcissistic abuse. Now, you might have. I don't know. And many people have. I've suffered from narcissistic abuse. But if we're going to talk about narcissistic personality disorder, then we're talking about um, uh, you know something that's very specific that very few people on the planet really understand. And I didn't really understand it until I studied it for many, many years and, tr- and, and also treated people with it and unfortunately experienced people in my personal life with it. I didn't – for many, many years, there were people in my personal life that I didn't know. So I was a clinician starting in 1996. God, that was a long time ago. And I was involved – personally with people with narcissistic personality disorder and didn't know it even though I was a trained clinician. It wasn't until 15 years later that when I really started, when I had the luxury of time, mainly because y'all became patrons. (laughs) When people become patrons, it gave me the ability to pull time away from my regular work to spend like three months studying narcissistic personality disorder, which is what it took for me to really get it. And then once I got it, I, I, I looked around in my life and into my history, and I was like, oh, my goodness, there were so many people with, uh, with narcissistic personality disorder, and I never knew it because it doesn't look the way it, you think it would. It's not just that they're vain. you know. It's not just that they're, that they're uh, self-absorbed. It's much more um, layered than that because just one of the things that I'll say is that when you are very self-absorbed and, and you're very interested in having people love you because you hate yourself deep down, by the way, then you will learn how to make people love you in a way that doesn't appear as though you're, you're self-absorbed. To be outwardly self-absorbed is actually a counter to many people that have narcissistic personality disorder because to appear self-absorbed would cause people to criticize you. Now, some people can be so pathological that they can't help coming across as self-absorbed to other people. But anyway, my point is, is that, well, let me do another caveat. Many of you out there have been abused. I've talked about this before, of course, the past 12 and a half years in this podcast. And many of you have been abused harshly for years by someone with narcissistic personality disorder. There are thousands of people listening right now, uh, you know, at law of averages, some of you were, whether you know it or not, you knew you were abused, but you might not know that the person had narcissistic personality disorder. And by the way, listen to my whole deep dive. It's available to patrons. It's long. I, how long is it? I think it's, um, is it like 10 hours or something? I can't remember. It's long. Anyway, point is, is that uh, I believe this total hypothesis that because people are hurt, like I said, they go to the internet for for a variety of reasons they're, they're hurt. They go to the internet and then this narcissistic personality disorder 
is fed to them. And then it creates this feedback loop where people consume it and then they write articles themselves. And then now we have this like whirlwind of this narcissism word being thrown around the internet that really wasn't on the internet 10 years ago. You know, I, I've been on the internet since it began and I don't remember narcissism being discussed as much as it is today. Now, I also want to make a distinction between narcissistic personality disorder and narcissism, and they are actually different clinical things. You can study someone's narcissism, and they won't qualify even for the narcissistic personality uh, spectrum that I talk about. I also want to differentiate between those two clinical research topics. You have narcissistic personality disorder or traits. You know, there's a spectrum of narcissistic personality, and then you have narcissism, which is, a, which is a much broader term that applies to, to things that might not even be problematic, by the way. Then you have another term, narcissism, in the clinical world that actually just refers to developmental narcissism. Children, for example, are much more narcissistic. Why? Because that's just – they don't understand things yet, <laughs> and they have a hard time mentalizing and understanding other people have feelings, and so they're much more self-absorbed, right? Then you have a fourth way of using narcissism on the internet that is really outside or in common culture that's outside of the clinical research literature where people are just calling someone narcissistic, like someone's saying that person is stuck up or that person is into themselves. Oh, Kim Kardashian, she's so narcissistic. Okay, fine. You can say that. It's just a non-clinical word. It's just like calling someone a jerk face or something. It's not clinical. It is the same word that we use in the clinical world, which I wish, I wish that we would change for that reason. But uh, so there's various different usage usages of the word. So if someone wrote an article, uh, your boyfriend broke up with you and he was so narcissistic. I have no problem with that. But as soon as you start talking about narcissistic personality disorder, now you're in my world and you're probably not, uh, you're, you probably don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Is the thing. And so Anonymous Patron is running into this right now. Anonymous Patron is like, I have a, my mom suffers from narcissistic traits. And I know how much she's suffering. And I also know that she went through a lot as a child. And that's why she has narcissistic traits. And the fact that the internet, including psychology today, which by the way, psychology today, I mean, as far as I can tell, anyone can write for psychology today. People who are very qualified to write will, will will write for psychology today, and people who are essentially just bloggers without any education can write on psychology today. So, also, even if they're a clinician, because often they they are clinicians who are writing on psychology today, that does not mean they know anything about what they're talking about. So, it, it's one of the terrible things about just once you grow up and become an adult, you're just like, wow, does anyone know what they're talking about? And you're just like, eh, most people don't. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, you ask, what are some ways people can help reduce, not to mention refrain from contributing to the culture of stigma and general negativity towards people working on their narcissistic tendencies? Well, I don't know. I think one of the things that might just, and we do this periodically in the DSM, is just, is just change the word. We've we changed manic depression to bipolar. We've changed, you know, originally in our field, it was a clinical term to call someone a moron or an idiot or retarded, right? When we invented those words in my profession decades ago, they were not bad words. But because society turned them into bad words, you're a moron, you're an idiot, you're retarded, then we had to change the words to other 
other words. And eventually those get used in bad ways in the same way that uh, labels for race, you, you know, there were a time when black people in America called themselves colored, but then eventually that word became a bad word because so many racists would use it in a negative way. And so um, now some people like gay people just circum, you know, they just acquire the word for themselves. When I was growing up to call someone gay was actually very, very, uh, it was a very, very bad label. And gay people that I knew hated the word and they liked to be called homosexual and queer was actually a really bad word. Anyway, point is, is that with the word narcissistic personality disorder, it appears we might be at that precipice where we can't go back there. There's, we can't go, we can't put that back. can't put that genie back in the bottle, so to speak. The cat's out of the bag. What other idiom can I say? And we just have to change the DSM language. And and I would be all for that, you know. What 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 could we call it? Narcissistic personality disorder. I mean, because at its core, like borderline, I've often said, you know, you could just call it abandonment trauma disorder. And with narcissistic personality disorder, you could call it neg- emotional neglect personality disorder or something, or grandiose. Uh, that would be used by popular people too. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'd have to give it some thought, but. So how can we help reduce the stigma? Um, You know, just do your best. There's a lot of stigma with borderline, for example, and it's just hard, you know, and I think we, you know, I'm doing my part and you can do your part. When people bring it up, just say, hey, by the way, the narcissistic personality disorder, I listened to this podcast, it's actually not necessarily what you're talking about. It's possible what you're talking about is actually someone that's psychopathic or sadistic because there are people out there who genuinely do not care about your feelings, okay, and genuinely want to hurt you. And those people we have words for, which are psychopaths or antisocial personality disorder to some extent and sadism. We've had these words for a long time. People suffering from narcissistic personality disorder, by definition, have capacity for empathy and do not actually take pleasure in harming you, usually. So if you experience that and you somehow conceptualize someone as purposely hurting you, then usually it's a, a, a properly trained and you know experienced clinician would not label that person. Anyway, I'm not going to get into the weeds on that, but okay. So, you know, I don't know. Just tell people, hey, or... The other thing that I do is for people suffering from narcissistic personality disorder is I just won't use the label. I do this with borderline as well. With people, I I don't, if I can help it, I won't say, hey, you suffer from borderline. What I'll say is you suffer from relational trauma because that word makes so much more sense and there's no stigma online around that. And uh, so we we might just all as a you know populace just say, like you anonymous patron with your mom you might not even frame it as a narcissistic personality disorder anymore. You might just frame it as, you know, generally speaking, the reason why people develop narcissistic personality disorder is early in life. We're talking, you know, zero to three, zero to four. They were significantly emotionally neglected, you know, and consistently maybe abused as well. But a theme in their life was that people weren't there for them. And so the child at the age of one year old, 18 months old, two, two years old, has to rely on themselves. 
so they're they're forced into this situation where they they they're they're crying and they're reaching out and they they want attention and they're trying to get attention you know the way kids will and they're continually being ignored and rejected and neglected and eventually they they get they get sad they cry they get upset but and and when none of that works they eventually graduate on this other side of like oh i get it no one is here for me no one is here to help me so what do i do now well and this is you know most mostly unconscious and a bit of bit of a trial and error thing that kids will do when they're young but for the people who developed narcissistic personality disorder they found that there was comfort in believing that they were superior there was comfort in not even turning to other people there was comfort in not even acknowledging that they have emotions neurologically these children actually have a different brain in that they don't necessarily know that they have emotions and thus it's harder for them to have empathy for their people they have the capacity for empathy but it's harder for them to have empathy one because they turned away from people neurologically at a young age plus they turned away from their own emotions and in order to have empathy you have to know your own emotions because empathy is the ability to feel other people's emotions someone else is crying and through the process of of natural empathy you f- feel the a little bit of the sadness that the other person is feeling and then you notice that and then you go oh that person must be sad it's the same feeling like if you've ever had someone that falls down on the street you know they're walking down the sidewalk and they trip and 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 they hit the ground pretty hard you know they skin their knee and you'll feel a pain in your knee you'll you'll go oh that's why we cringe because we're we're protecting our our torso we cringe because we're like oh no because we are feeling their pain and and we know through the feeling that we get in our body that must be what they're feeling and narcissistic people because they cut themselves off from their emotions it's hard for them to to notice those kinds of things anyway and and they're and they're like that since they're 2 years old so they if they do start to develop empathy it starts from a 2 year old's virgin version of empathy if that makes sense anyway and there's gradations and of course but i want to be clear and say that if someone suffers from full blown narcissistic personality disorder even though i will conceptualize them in a way that has compassion i'm not saying that one should put up with their behavior if it's abusive to you okay anyway um then you also say okay so how can we better support people who suffer from this condition well one is to have compassion and the way we have compassion is through accurate conceptualization when you see someone accurately clinically speaking neurologically speaking developmentally speaking then it compels compassion what i'm not saying when i say compassion is you just sort of force compassion you know say someone is hurting your feelings and and you feel bad well you can't really have compassion for that person but if you somehow assess them somehow even from a lay person's perspective and you're just like oh i bet you it has to do with the abuse and they develop this notion that they can rely on, they have to rely on themselves and that they're superior to the people and oh my goodness i feel bad for them now okay cuz when you see someone accurately in my experience you have compassion uh also making sure you have boundaries with people that have narcissistic personality disorder cuz they're they're likely going to hurt your feelings at times also try not to take it personally if you can when they are hurtful and obviously telling them to go to therapy with someone that specializes in it 
All right, let's go to a break. Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist. But I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, we're back from the break. Tomorrow on Saturday, we're going to be having a live show on YouTube. For you people who don't join us on YouTube, this will be a live show. Me and Umberto and Colin will be doing kind of a game show thing. This will be the first of potentially many that we'll do. So it's, it's, not, it's not like the anniversary show where we are, we're on air for 12 hours, but be about an hour or so and uh, should be fun to watch. Four o'clock Seattle time, Saturday, December 19th, 2020, if you're listening to this five years from now. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, as I understand it, providers are required to administer the PHQ-9. The P- chiming in here, the PHQ-9 is a depression inventory measure. It's nine questions, I believe. And it is, uh, you know, it asks a bunch of questions like, you know, do you think about suicide? Are you sad often? Do you not take pleasure in things that you normally take pleasure in? Are you, has your appetite changed? Has your sleep changed? These kinds of questions as a way of assessing whether or not someone is depressed. So uh, she says, as I understand it, providers are – and by providers, I think she means medical providers. As I understand it, medical pro- providers are required to administer a PHQ-9. However, I have some patients who wish to refuse it. Uh, or I know some patients who wish to refuse it. These questionnaires can evoke strong feelings of shame, anger, and embarrassment from the patient. It can, neg- it can negatively impact a patient's mood and feelings of self-worth for the rest of the day. If it seems unethical to force a patient with an eating disorder to step onto a scale and read those numbers, then why are we for- forcing patients who have a diagnosis of severe and chronic depression to mentally and or literally calculate their quote-unquote depression score? End of email. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So there's pros and cons. The pros to having it be a policy that all medical providers administer this. And I've had medical providers administer it to me as well. I don't think they had to do it every time you come to the office. I think maybe it's like it has to be done once a year or something. The pros to having it be a policy to do this is that you can catch people who wouldn't be caught otherwise, people who wouldn't be assessed otherwise, such that you can make a referral. Because if you don't administer one of these tests and say you just as a policy have the physician say, hey, are you depressed? Then maybe you're not going to get an accurate response. By administering this measure, uh, you're more likely to to very quickly, because that's the other thing is that because of the way medicine works, you have to work really fast as a physician. And you don't necessarily have time to 
ask everyone nine questions verbally and sort of gauge how they're responding to it, right? Uh, it is a little interesting that it's always depression because, of course, other things people can suffer from. I think I'm pretty sure people are more likely to be suffering from anxiety than depression. But anyway, the cons to having this be a policy is what you said, is that it can make people feel ashamed of themselves. And if the, you know, the times that I've taken these questionnaires, when I go to the doctor, I don't think anyone sits there and talks it over with me, maybe because I'm not depressed. But anyway, so a solution to this, we, we, we need to screen people for depression and other mental conditions. And the vast majority of people either don't know they're suffering from a mental condition or they don't seek help. And one of the ways that science shows that we can actually help people literally save their lives because depressed people might die from various different things. Uh, but if we're going to help people, we have to assess them. We have to screen them. And when they happen to show up at the uh, – it's sort of like you'll go in for some random thing and they'll take your blood pressure. Well, why do they do that? Well, because a lot of people don't know that they have high blood pressure. And so you are, as a policy, uh, measured in that way so that they can catch it. Now, not a lot of people are shamed by blood pressure measuring, whereas they can be shamed by a depression measure. The solution is that the people who administer these measures should be trained on the measure and on also how to help the person, how to account for those individuals who might be shamed by it. So uh, there's a lot of research in this area. I, it's not an area of mine because I don't, I don't work in the medical profession. And, and frankly, I don't use these measures because I can just ask people the questions. But um, it's, a, it's a matter of pros and cons because anonymous patron, if we're just like, hey, let's just not – we don't know who is going to be shamed by this measure. So let's not administer it. Then we're not going to catch those people so that we can get them the help that they need. Or if you say, okay, let's everyone take time to make sure that the patient isn't shamed by the measure. Well, now you're jacking up prices because time is money. And you're going to have to raise rates or you're going to have to take time away from other kinds of things that you're going to do. And so it's, it, it's – the medical industry is a very large monster, if you will. And when you start you know, changing policies for the betterment of patients, it, it can have consequences down the road that can actually diminish overall care to patients, if that makes any sense. So I will say that my very brief and limited understanding of this policy is generally I support it because without it, it's likely a lot of physicians wouldn't ask the questions even if they were trained to do so. Because in my experience, physicians, they're just not comfortable asking or talking about mental conditions. They might have some training, but... They, they, I've just anecdotally and um, research shows that a lot of physicians have a hard time with it. But anyway, but you know, I I don't know any more than that. Maybe you know much more about you know, like say anonymous patron for you. You're just like no, you don't understand. Half of the patients that are given the PHQ nine report to me that they're that they're shamed by this thing. They don't, they don't want to take it. 
well, if that's the case, we got a problem and we need to change it. So that's what I'll say about that. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I absolutely know that some of my parents' parenting methods came from a place of love, and I know that they always tried to do their best. However, I am still struggling to get over some incidents where they hurt my feelings. My mom will become very aggressive as soon as I show negative emotions. This has resulted in me having a hard time dealing with negative emotions. I love my parents a lot, though. Do you have any advice for getting past my mom's hostility and the passiveness I feel towards talking about my negative emotions? End of email. Yeah, well, it's hard for me to know. And of course, you want to go to an individual or family therapist for this. But in general, you can love your parents and protect yourself from them. You can be loyal and dedicated to your parents and your family, and you can push back on hostility. You ask this question, uh, how do I get past my mom's hostility? This implies somehow it's your responsibility to cope or deal with it. It's not possible. No one can deal with abuse. No one can just like, uh, you know, there's no mental trick to coping with abuse. There's no amount of support you can get from other people that is going to alleviate the pain and the damage done by ongoing abuse. And if you grew up with an abusive parent, I don't know if your parents are abusive, but it, it at least sounds it's on the spectrum according to your narrative. You might not know that you deserve to not be abused, which I'm going to tell you, you deserve to not be abused. You deserve to live a life where people are not aggressive towards you or hostile towards you, particularly when you show negative emotions, like you're sad or you're angry or something. So uh, uh, the whenever I get questions like this, I'm always like, well, you know, it, it's sort of like you go to a physician and, and, uh, and you're complaining. You're like, yeah, I have this pain in my side. How do I deal with it? Or no, better yet, someone comes into therapy and says, I have this pain in my side. How do I deal with it? And the therapist says, where in the side? And, you know, the person raises their arm and there's like a, a branch sticking out of, their, out of their torso. How do I deal with this? Well, any psychotherapist would be like, no, don't deal with it. Go to the, go to the hospital. Have that thing removed. Uh, get medical treatment. Well, as it's a, that's a metaphor for someone coming in and saying, I'm being abused. How do I deal with it, therapist? No. <laughs> like, uh, first off, we got to get rid of the, the branch sticking out of your side, which is the unfair hostility and potentially abuse that you're going through. Now, I don't know exactly how to how to, you know, navigate that. Maybe that's hard to do, but obviously talking with a therapist about that is is important. The other thing you can do with a family therapist or individual therapist is to change the relationship that you have with your parents and learn how to become assertive and learn how to value your um, feelings and your yourself, right? That when you have negative emotions, and I don't know what you mean by negative emotions, it's just really sky's the limit in terms of, you know, maybe if I talked to your parents, I would understand what they're talking about. I just don't know, because I would have to assess everyone. But but my point is, is that uh, there's tremendous growth potential with how you relate to your emotions, and how you feel about your emotions. But 
the way you do that typically is by having someone show you that your emotions are okay through corrective experiences in therapy and or through family therapy in which they engineer corrective experiences with your own parents. Wouldn't it be wonderful if a family therapist could engineer a ongoing scenario where your parents are not aggressive, where your mom is not hostile towards you when you show emotions? And that would be corrective for you, right? It would show you that your emotions are okay and that you're worth having emotions and, it, and you're, you don't deserve to be treated badly. But that's what I'll say about that. All right, this next email is from an anonymous listener. She says, I've been diagnosed with complex PTSD. I'm 23 years old. I'm looking for a therapist in my country of Canada. I really didn't like my previous therapist. I heard you talking about psychoanalysis, psychodynamic therapy, and cognitive therapy. I've been wondering which one might be best for me. I've had a lot of bad, intrusive thoughts that bring a controlling negativity into my life. What type of therapy would you suggest for someone who had a really abusive and bad upbringing, has no contact with anyone from their family, was subjected to physical abuse, was stuck in an exploitative relational pattern, has a defensive, a defective self-schema, end of email. Well, first off, anonymous listener, you are very self-aware, and I commend that. I also commend that you've been to therapy, and you're like, eh, I didn't really like that therapist. I'm looking for a new one. Also very commendable. A lot of people will uh, go to therapy, it doesn't work out quite right, and then they just give up. Uh, not recommended, people. <laughs> uh, usually it takes a handful of therapists to try out before you find, you know, a perfect fit. So uh, don't give up on the first try. Um, so you talk about me talking about psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapy and cognitive therapy, but I want to just throw out some other terms. There's brief therapies, there's solution focus, there's narrative, postmodern therapies. Um, there's, uh, what do they call it? What was, what's O'Hanlon's? I can't remember his solution, solution focused and, Solution-focused and, gosh, I can't remember. Solution, I don't know. <laughs> there's systems theory. There's object relations. There's ego psychology. There's Jungian. There's Adler. There's um, humanistic. There's EFT. There's CBT. There's behavioral therapy. There is internalized depression therapy. There's feminist therapy, multicultural therapy. There is structural and strategic and Bowenian, and many, many more. So uh, just know that all of those, except for a couple, I adhere to, and all of them can be great. But you ask the question, what therapy would I suggest for someone who has complex PTSD, essentially bad upbringing, and is, has a defective self-schema? If you don't know what a defective self-schema is, listen to all my episodes on schema therapy. I did those over the past year, and um, if, if it's, if it's a few things I wish people would know about me, it's attachment theory, personality disorders, and as a kind of a distant third schema therapy, because I find it to be very useful model in terms of assessing personality and the self. It's, it's pretty non self blaming usually anyway. Um, so you have complex PTSD. What is that? Well, it's, I don't know if you're accurately diagnosing yourself, but if you are, Complex PTSD involves being terrorized by people in your family, essentially, people who are close to you. Typically, it's a parent or an older sibling. You are three to you know seven years old, and 
you're someone who's supposed to take care of you, who lives with you usually, is actively traumatizing you and making you feel very scared. That's the point of PTSD is PTSD emerges from fear. It emerges from terror. A lot of people use PTSD or even complex PTSD as just a stand-in for this person has been traumatized. But we have to define trauma, one, and two, not everyone who's been traumatized develops PTSD or complex PTSD. You can have relational traumas and you can have conditions or syndromes or symptoms or effects of that relational trauma, but we might not characterize that as PTSD. But anyway, the point is, is that if we're going to assume that you're correct, which I don't know, I'd have to assess you, maybe you've been assessed properly. PTSD is a condition in which neurologically, when you are triggered to remember the traumatic event that happened in the past or the series of traumatic events that happened in the past, you have a physiological reaction that's very distinct to PTSD. You have a, you have a sharp spike in distress, which causes you to avoid any possibility of trigger. So people with PTSD, they learn pretty quickly, oh, when I do this, I have a spike in distress, so I, I'm just going to avoid that. And that avoidance causes a lot of problems in, in one's life, right? Complex PTSD sometimes will cause people to avoid having sex with someone when they want to or having a relationship or going to therapy because when they do that, they have a, a sharp spike in their distress. And we're not talking about just like mild discomfort. We're talking about total flooding of emotions uh, of distress particularly. And that's what – and then, so the complex part of the PTSD is that – it was done – you were – you know, if, if you're in a car accident and you don't blame someone in your family necessarily, then you could develop PTSD because it's, it's just you went through a trauma of a car accident and you have, you have delayed uh, syndrome as a result. With someone that is terrorizing you and your family, well, now it's complicated because now the trauma – associations involve love and attachments and relationships and security. So as you become secure or as you develop a relationship with someone, then you are triggered. And naturally, when we're triggered, we want to reach out to people for support, but then that person triggers us. And it's just, that's what makes it very complicated. When someone goes through a car accident and they come to me for treatment for PTSD, I'm not going to trigger them because I'm not a car, if you make it, if that makes sense. If someone was traumatized by their father and fathers or relationships with people trigger them and they come to me for help, well, it's complicated by the fact that they're going to be triggered by me as a therapist just because I'm going to get close to that person. It's going to be an intimate conversation and that's going to trigger them. It's just one way of looking at complex PTSD. But anyway. So what sort of therapist should you go to? Well, you should go to someone that specializes in complex PTSD. Don't, don't mind the, the label. A cognitive therapist could specialize in it and be effective, a psychodynamic person, a psychoanalytic person, a humanistic person. So I, I would look for the specific of complex PTSD or relational trauma or borderline. I would look – you know, some researchers consider, and me included to some extent depending on the definition, that – we have PTSD and then you have complex PTSD and then you have borderline and it's kind of a spectrum there. And borderline is just complex PTSD with additional symptoms, if that makes any sense. 
listen to my whole episode with Bob I did a few years ago. I think it's called Borderline versus Complex PTSD. Um, but anyway, I, I would look for someone who specializes in it, and I wouldn't necessarily worry about the label because you could find someone that was, you know, very good cognitive therapist, but really just doesn't understand complex PTSD. It's pretty particular. So that's what I'll say to that. All right. This next email is from anonymous listener. She says, the short Pixar movie bow really hit home for me, especially the part where the mom eats the bow. Just chiming in here. If you haven't seen this short uh, cartoon called bow, meaning like hum bow, like, like a bun, Chinese buns. If you've ever had those kinds of things, (laughs) they're, they're really good. And there's a Pixar movie called Bao, and uh, it's a very special movie, and and I really love it. And when she eats the Bao, I felt like that was both a very shocking and a very poignant moment. Some people found that moment to be, if you've seen it, they found that moment to be kind of weird, but I totally understood what the writers were going for. Uh, So she says, "The, the short Pixar movie Bao really hit home for me, especially the part where the mom eats the Bao. This is how I feel when my mom says very nasty things to me. It feels like she wants to hurt me because things in my life aren't going the way she wanted them to. She told me that I'm having trouble getting pregnant because I'm not going to church enough and other ways that she talks to me. I have issues with my very toxic, hurtful mother and the rest of my family. Currently, I'm not talking to any of my family. I am Korean and wonder if a non-Asian therapist will fail to understand the full extent of my issues would you say that culture and ethnicity play a role in finding a therapist? End of email. Yeah. Uh, so first thing I'll say is that one of the things that's not often recognized is that Koreans have been traumatized as a culture, as a nation, both North and South, for a, you know at least 100 years, maybe longer. The Japanese, my ancestors, invaded Korea and – did horrible, horrible things to Koreans. And there have been other atrocities as well. And as a people, when you are traumatized, you, as a people, pass down that trauma through the generations. Uh, Black families can uh, attest to this, Jewish families, any group, Polish people, for example, Poland has been routinely traumatized over the last couple hundred years by... Uh, the Nazis, by the Russians, by other people. And so when you have a whole group of people who have been just massively traumatized, I mean, trauma on a level that our modern or typical modernized will never be able to understand. I mean, we're complaining when our phone doesn't work. These people had their whole family shot in front of them, these kinds of things. So there were horrific thing. You know, one of the things about American uh, media is that in America, it'd be hard not to be aware of the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust in World War II, that the Nazis systematically murdered millions of Jewish people. Most of us understand that. There have been other similar genocides around the world that most Americans just have no idea about. And the rest of the world doesn't even acknowledge because there's just an active effort to suppress that knowledge. The Korean, the, the Koreans were in some ways, and 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 also the Chinese, were the Jewish people of the Japanese during the World War II. Meaning that the Japanese 
army and government systematically committed genocide on Koreans, on Chinese people. And and not just during what we consider to be World War II, but starting like many years before the beginning of World War II as Americans frame it. Anyway, so when you do that to an entire people, what happens is you just take a whole group of people. They're all traumatized. They're, they've all been made to feel terrible. Uh, the parenting takes a back seat, right? If you're a refugee and you're just trying to survive a war – you don't have a lot of time for playing with your kids or building your kids' self-esteem or having your kid play with other kids or having your kid learn how to draw pictures and feel good about themselves. All the things that parenting involves under normal times. When you're uh, experiencing atrocities over years and years, you have a whole group, you have a whole generation of children that have been raised in a way that make it difficult for them to manage their emotions. And when they grow up, they have a hard time parenting in general. They have a hard time bonding with their kids. They have a hard time with their own emotions. They have a hard time having empathy because they weren't given enough empathy when they were young because their parents were were just trying to survive or their parents were literally killed. So, um, or their parents were so traumatized that they drank themselves into a grave or something like that or killed themselves. Anyway, point is, is that when you look at Korean families today, and not every Korean family, of course, but many of them will exhibit that today where you will see, you know, the the generations down, you will see the ripple effect of those atrocities. So it's possible, anonymous listener, that your mother has has that trauma passed down to her, and that's why it, uh, that's a, the biggest factor in her inability or her difficulties with parenting. You call her toxic and hurtful, and judgmental, and just aggressive towards you and, and mean towards you, and that. It, when you watch the Pixar movie Bao, you can identify because you have this mom who just wants you to do what uh, you're supposed to do in, in her eyes. And she'd rather eat you and kill you than let you uh, make your own choices, that kind of thing, rather than respect you as a separate human being. It doesn't let her off the hook necessarily, but it puts it into a context. And a lot of Korean – I have a lot of Korean friends. When you're Asian, you hang out with a lot of other Asians. And so I have a lot of Korean friends who have evidence of this transgenerational trauma. And it's no joke, okay? The other thing is that there's a cultural difference in terms of understanding what parents are supposed to do. And – Although when we when we describe Asian cultures, we're literally talking about more than half of the world's population, when, especially when you include India. So, you know, we're not going to be able to generalize to Asia. It's one of the it's one of the most annoying things about being an American is, and in my own field, frankly, is what race are you? You know, what ethnicity are you? Oh, you're Asian. Yeah, that doesn't mean anything. It's that's akin to saying you're a human being. Um, Japanese are different from Koreans are different from Lao and Hmong and Vietnamese and different. I mean, China itself is just a vast sea of different cultures and languages in India and Singapore and Indonesia and, you know, Guam and, you know, uh, all the uh, Hawaiian islands and, and, 
just everyone. <laughs> Did I miss anybody? I'm, I'm worried I missed someone. Thailand, uh, Thai people, Bangladesh. Anyway, <laughs> point is, is that just vast seas of varying cultures. Anyway, but uh, so I'm not really answering your question. The other way I'm not going to answer your question is to say that you're, uh, when you're traumatized as a people, turning to religion can be very, very helpful, right? And when, as a people, you're suffering greatly, your, your grip on a religion can get real tight. And in some ways, signs of a society that is not traumatized is when the people have a, a looser grip on their religion, and so Koreans, because they've been traumatized so much, you can see that there's a reason why they might cling to their religions. Uh, a lot of Korean Americans are are Christian. And uh, so that's all I'll say about that. The other thing is, is when you're being oppressed by other Americans, then one, you can assimilate by just acting like them. And one of the ways you can do it is to act like their religion. The other way is... Uh, well, I'm not going to go in. Anyway, point is, is that your, their, your mom might be very hurtful to you, but there might be some reasons as to why she sees the world the way that she does, if that makes sense. I don't know your mom, but, you know, just some things that I've seen. But your question is, you know, um, you're, you're Korean and you wonder if a non-Asian therapist will fail to understand the full extent of your issues. Would I say that culture and ethnicity play a role in finding a therapist? Yes, Absolutely. Non-Asians are probably not going to understand. One, because uh, Asian culture is rarely discussed uh, and white people I find to be just wolf. It is comical how unaware white people are in general to Asian cultures, even though Asians have lived in this country for hundreds of years. <laughs> it's just like we're just ignored completely as a culture. You know, whenever they talk about race in our country, it's – you got whites and you got blacks. Maybe we'll talk about Hispanics, but Asians? Who's going to talk about them? There's there's millions of us. <laughs> We've been here a long time. Um, anyway, the point is, is that uh, white people, generally speaking, have a hard time understanding Asians. And, you know, any anyone besides Asians are going to have a hard time. The, the other thing is that when and, – and I – it just drives me nuts. And if you're one of these white people, listen closely. One of the ways that people refer to Asian cultures is collective. Oh, you know, collective cultures. Because white people will go to some, you know, cultural sensitivity seminar. And because the training is terrible or, I don't know, over their head, a lot of people will walk away from these seminars going like, oh, Asians are collective and white people are individualistic. Uh, if, if you've heard this sort of dogma or this sort of line, you'll, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a discussion around collectivist cultures and individualist cultures. There's nothing wrong with that. But I find that a lot of people, they, it, it sort of fits with their racism about Asians, that Asians are just like this mass of, you know, Everyone looks the same, and none of them care about individuality. They none of them care about fashion. They're just worker bees. You know that a lot of white people in America they they just consider Asians to be like this this mass of factory workers. 
without personalities and without talent and without dreams. And everyone is just a collectivist. You know, everyone's just – they follow orders like little ants. Just you know, And it literally gets to that. You'll hear people even talk – more explicitly in that way. It's just, you know, like, oh, the Chinese cockroaches are coming over to buy up our land. You'll you'll hear language around that. And it's ridiculous because somehow the lesson learned is that Asians don't have individual personalities, that Asians don't have dreams, and they don't have uh, ambition, and they don't have talent, and, you, and they don't have individualism uh, ideas, and that they're very nice. <laughs> Asians can be some of the big, biggest dicks on the planet. So, uh, you know, whatever sort of weird stereotype you have about Asians, you know, just try to get rid of it. And so to you and I, I'm a listener, if you go to a therapist, you know, it, there's a pretty good chance that the therapist is going to be white. And there's a pretty good chance that that therapist has either extremely limited information about Asians or very stereotypical ideas. Now, I will say that there are white people that know Asians better than I do. Um, I actually have a cousin who married. So I have a cousin who is half Japanese like me. He married a white woman. And this white woman, Catherine, uh, she actually teaches at Antioch. Um, she has been she's lived in Japan for years or I don't know, a long time. She speaks Japanese. She reads Japanese. She understands Japanese culture. So this white relative of mine understands Japanese culture way better than I do. I do. And she's a professor and a therapist. And so the color of someone's skin doesn't necessarily mean, and you can go to an Asian person uh, like me, like if you're an Asian person, you'd be better off going to Catherine. If you're trying to get like a Japanese specific, uh, awareness than you are to me, even though I'm Japanese, but I'm fourth generation. So what do I know? So the point is, is that uh, there are some anomalies for sure. But in general, yeah, you're not going to find someone that gets it. And when you describe, you might even sit down with someone who doesn't understand and be like, let me, ex- let me explain Korean culture to you. They might have a real hard time wrapping their mind around what it's like to live in a Korean family and just how different it is. And they might have a real hard time not pathologizing what they're hearing. It's very common for Korean parents to criticize out of love, to control out of love, to be invasive out of love. Now, as a Korean person yourself, you don't have to put up with that because it's because it's cultural, so to speak. But it definitely puts it into a different context. Anyway, But having said that, let's say you did find a good match in a person who didn't understand Asian culture. That doesn't mean it's going to be bad. It doesn't mean it's not going to be effective. Uh, By definition, most therapeutic relationships between therapist and client are cross-cultural. When I have a woman as a client, I do not know what it's like to be a woman. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand what it's like to be a woman, but I'll never really get what it's like to be a woman. And it shows. Some of you listening to the podcast, if you listen long enough, you'll hear the fact that I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I will say things that are toned in a particular way or I miss particular things because there's only so far I can extend my understanding. I just will never know what it's like to be a woman. 
I'll just never understand that. I'll never know what it's like to be a gay person. I'll never know what it's like to be a trans person. I'll never know what it's like to be a white person. I'll never know what it's like to be a full Asian person. I only understand my place in culture. And I'll never really understand. Now I can extend myself and I try. The fact that I understand Koreans better than the average American is because, not because I'm Korean, but because I extend them. Japanese people are very different from Koreans, by the way. <laughs> so the fact that I understand Koreans has really nothing to do with the fact that I'm Japanese and more the fact that Koreans and Japanese get lumped together by white people in our society, or we tend to band together against the white people because they're, they're pushing us aside anyway. And so we might as well stick together because in, you know, in the Asian world, it's not like Koreans and Japanese are pals, you know, they, they remember history. (laughs) They can be pals for sure. But anyway, um, so it's any relationship that uh, a therapist and a client has, there's always going to be some cultural uh, uh, blind spots. And it's up to every therapist to really pay attention to that and do something about it. What do you do about it, though? It's pretty complicated. Uh, I could really ramble on for a long time about that, but I won't. Um, and to some extent, it's kind of up to you as a client to raise it, to say, you know what, therapist of mine, it's been six sessions, and I I feel like you don't really understand Korean culture, and I want to explain it to you because I feel like some of the things you say just kind of make me feel like you just don't really get it, and I want you to get it. I want you to understand Korean culture. Let me let me try to explain it to you so you understand my world. Any good therapist would say, oh, goody, yes, please, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. <laughs> I would love to understand Korean culture. I was actually being shy. I didn't know. I didn't want to offend you. And so I wasn't really asking. So if you're a client, you know, this applies to all cultural differences. If you're a man and your therapist is a, is a woman, you can say, I feel like you don't really understand what it's like to be a man. Can I explain to you how, what it's like to be a man? Um, And so any, this applies to anything. Having said that, if you have the opportunity to find both a therapist that you like and they happen to be Asian, then you're at a better position because you you probably don't have to do as much explaining. Anyway, let's read another email. All right, this next email is from listener Helena. She says, I have started therapy mainly due to watching you, and it is the best investment I have ever made. Just chiming in here. Music to my ears, Helena. Wonderful, wonderful. Good for you. Going on. With her email, I have a friend who is such a lovely woman, but I think she could use some therapy. She has been hurt a lot in prior relationships and has a very negative view of herself. She asks me a lot of questions about her love life or drama with her friends, and she often cries while doing so. Though I love her, I don't see what I can do for her. Some people see therapy as a negative thing that is only for crazy people, and I don't want her to perceive that I think there is something wrong with her. Do you have any advice on how to suggest therapy to a friend in a loving, non-judgmental way? end of email. Yeah, just say it. <laughs> Plus you're in therapy. Just say, hey, you know what? I'm in therapy and I love it and I recommend you go too. The other thing you can say is, I want to be here for you and I will continue to be here for you. So by saying, I think you should go to therapy, I'm not saying I don't want to listen to you because I do. Um, we will be here for each other and we should both go to therapy. <laughs> so I don't know. That's that's what I would say. But, you know, people ask me these questions all the time. How do I get this person to go to therapy? There's, 
I don't know. Uh, what do I say here? So if you think, if you see someone suffering and you think that therapy will help, then by all means, mention it. Just be like, hey, I have a therapist that I go to. Would you like their number? Or I don't know. Whatever you say, just just make a suggestion. But don't get your hopes up because in my experience, professionally and anecdotally, people go to therapy or they don't. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's kind of a dumb way of putting it, but they're either going to go or they're not, and they're not likely to be persuaded by an outside force. And some people's problems run so deep and they're so terrified of therapy or they've been literally traumatized by past therapists that it is a huge hurdle to jump over for them. And I've personally tried to get people in my personal life to go to therapy. I've gone on, I've gone on campaigns as a therapist who I would like to think I'm pretty good with my words and have been largely unsuccessful getting those people to go to therapy. Then I have other relatives. They, they just call me up. And they're just like, hey, I know you're a therapist. Um, I'm, I'm kind of going through a bad time right now. Uh, do you have any recommendations? So like random people in my family and my personal life will just call me and ask for a therapist, even though I didn't suggest that they go. So there's some people that, you know, most people know about therapy, right? And so some people just, it appeals to them and some people it just doesn't. Uh, and it's really kind of a shame because usually the people that it doesn't appeal to need the therapy the most. By the way, it's kind of a nice thing when I think back on all the different times it's happened where a family member has reached out to me and said, you know what, I think I need a therapist. It gives an opportunity for me and that person to have some very real, authentic conversations about their lives, right? Because a lot of times they want to share what's going on. And so I'll listen and I've learned a lot about my family through this uh, referral service that I have in my social circle <laughs> and really learned like, wow, you know, even though you go to Thanksgiving and everyone seems like they're chipper, not everyone is chipper. <laughs> people are suffering and uh, people very close to us are suffering in ways that are hard to imagine or see. Suffering is going on all the time. By the way, I uh, actually, a, a distant family member actually just texted me yesterday. I am in a magazine uh, issue this month called Seattle Met. I think it's like Seattle Metropolitan. I guess it's probably what it's short for. It's a magazine, Seattle. It's like a culture, food, you know, local news kind of magazine, monthly magazine. And I am in there and my, I got a giant um, headshot in there and, and if I remember right, it's a article on 10 local podcasts. And of course, you know, Psychology of Seattle, it's very local. By the way, um, well, so if you have Seattle Met, I'm in there. <laughs> and um, I immediately bought two issues online and they're, they're going to mail it to me. And I've, I've never read that magazine before. But it's just kind of weird that that's happened, you know, because... I've been a podcaster for 12 and a half years and I feel like so many things are happening. Another weird thing that's happening is uh, Cameo. I'm, I signed up with Cameo a couple weeks ago. Um, Stacy, my wife, the pod wife, and also essentially the producer of this podcast, she, she has been saying, you know, people have been asking for Cameo. If you don't know what Cameo is, you, you pay like D level celebrities to tell you happy birthday, essentially, you know? And for those of you who watch my 
90 Day Fiance videos, you can actually get various different 90 Day Fiance cast members to wish you happy birthday. Anyway, so I uh, they've been talking about we've been talking about it for a while, and I just thought, yeah, no one's gonna want me to do that. Plus, I don't have a lot of time. But anyway, I signed up a couple weeks ago and have gotten a lot of requests. <laughs> and and uh, it's been weird. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a totally different way of, um, of uh, it, it was very uncomfortable to me at first to, because people would say like, hey, you know, I'm kind of going through something right now. Can you kind of give me a pep talk? By the way, if you do a cameo, you know, I, I want to give you a pep talk, but I don't know who you are, so it's hard for me to give a pep talk to someone I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, if that's your main thing that you want on Cameo, then I guess go for it. But, and I usually make the most of it. But just know that the easiest Cameos I get are the happy birthday, congratulations, happy anniversary, Merry Christmas ones. Those Cameos are uh, easier. And I usually, you know, I try to zhuzh them up a little bit. I don't just... I don't just say Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, and I'm getting used to it. it. At first, I was really uncomfortable. And then I was just like, I don't know if I like Maybe I should stop this whole cameo thing. And then I feel like I'm getting into the swing of it. I don't know if I'm going to do it forever, by the way, because it's kind of taking up a lot of time. It's strange how much time it takes because you got you to gotta read their request. And anyway, um, and sometimes I, I'll, 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 I'll talk for like, I don't know, five minutes, <laughs> you know, the cameo is supposed to be like 15 seconds anyway. So, you know, there's that, which is also kind of a trip for me. But the other thing that I'll mention just while I'm rambling is psychology in Seattle, the name psychology in Seattle. Have any of you ever wondered why in the world is it called psychology in Seattle? It doesn't make any sense, right? No podcast has a sit, very few podcasts have a city in their name, right? Like there's not true crime podcasts. It's like true crime in Cincinnati or something. Well, a lot of people think I call it psychology in Seattle because of Frasier, which I that never occurred to me. Or they think I'm calling it psychology in Seattle because it's like sleepless in Seattle, which also never occurred to me. People who don't live in Seattle, when they think of Seattle, there's like a handful of things they think of. It rains all the time which it doesn't really, it's just cloudy. It does have a fair amount of rainy days, but it it's not as annoying as it might seem. Anyway, it's cloudy all the time, which can be annoying, but they always say it rains all the time, or they think about Kurt Cobain, or they think about Frasier, or they think about Sleepless in Seattle. And for people who live in Seattle, we don't think about any of these things. I mean, maybe you think about the rain. Maybe you think about the cloudiness because it's hard to avoid. But, but people in Seattle don't think – I don't, I don't know anyone in Seattle who, like, thinks of Sleepless in Seattle, the movie, as, like, an important movie in their lives. <laughs> or Frasier. You know, I don't know anyone in Seattle who thinks about – who lives in Seattle proper, by the way, um, who thinks of Frasier as actually living in Seattle. Because I don't think anyone thought that Frazier actually lived in Seattle. You know, it's clearly a soundstage in Los Angeles or wherever it is. You know what I mean? So, um, so when I called it Psychology in Seattle, I was not thinking of Frazier, and Frazier was not a part of my life. It never occurred. You know, every therapist I know in Seattle 
doesn't think about Frasier. Frasier's not on our radar. And Sleepless in Seattle, we saw it in the 90s and we never saw it again. And it's a fine movie, but it's, you know, one of thousands. Anyway, so I did not name it after Sleepless in Seattle. To me, that's an insult that you would ever think I would name something so stupid as that. And it's not after Frasier. And so the reason why I named it Psychology in Seattle is because in the beginning I had, so one, podcasts in 2008 weren't really a thing. I mean, they were a thing. There was definitely podcasts happening. But just to give you an idea of the landscape, there were three psychology podcasts in total. In all of the podcast offerings in 2008, three podcasts talked about psychology. Now you probably are talking about thousands of podcasts about psychology, many of which are hard to find because that no one listens to them or they're, you know, they're just starting out. But in 2008, there were very few podcasts actually available. And, and I was listening to some very bad podcasts because I just wanted to listen to anything because I just loved that form of, of podcasting. I just loved it. I love talk radio. And then, um, and then it's just sort of, and I liked audio books and then when podcasts came out anyway. So when I started the podcast, I did not know what I was creating. <laughs> and, and for those of you who don't know, this podcast for the first year was video only. And we had professional camera guys and sound people. <laughs> and we would shoot on location and we would do restaurant reviews in the restaurant. And it would have nothing to do with psychology. So what I thought I was creating in the beginning, which is absurd to think about, is I thought I was creating a local cultural TV show, essentially, where we would talk, we would go around to different sites in Seattle, because I love this town, and talk about different things. We would review restaurants, we would go to different landmarks, like here is a totem pole, and this is the artist that made this totem pole. And, and we, did, we did episodes in art galleries, and um, I also at the time was still kind of building my private practice or I was trying to sustain my private practice. And so, and I wasn't teaching actually at the time. So the only thing I was doing was I was in private practice. I was taking a break from teaching at the time. Actually, I wasn't taking a break. I had, I had retired as a professor, as a professor because I was getting so annoyed with some of the downside. Being a professor, there's a lot of upsides. There's a lot of downsides. And I, I had a lot of downsides that were annoying me back then. And I just quit. I, and it was the second time I'd quit being a professor, by the way, because I was just like, I can't take this anymore. It's just so, there's just, working with students, great. You know, working with the students who want to be there, great. Working with the very occasional, like one out of 30 people who like, there's something different about them that makes them hate you for whatever reason. That wasn't fun as a professor. Anyway, so I wasn't teaching. I was just, I was just totally reliant on my income as a therapist. And although my practice was doing pretty well, you just never knew what was happening. And then the housing crisis happened and the, in 2008, you know, and a lot of people stopped going to therapy and uh, just a little <laughs> note about this is by the end of 2008, I was, I was down to two clients. So that is not enough income for a month <laughs> to pay. That was my sole income, right? A normal practice has like 30 clients at, by the end of 2008, because of the housing crisis and the economy was tanking, I had two clients. And, uh, so things were pretty dire. And so 
uh, when I started the podcast, the housing crisis was just beginning. But anyway, point was, was I called it psychology in Seattle because I wanted to situate myself in a town so that people in Seattle would know that they could hire me or they could hire my colleagues, like friends I knew. I wanted it essentially, I wanted the podcast essentially to be kind of like a, a referral draw, if that makes a client advertising. I was going to use the podcast as an advertising tool, if that makes any sense, partially. And I worried that if I just called it like the psychology podcast, I would, people would listen to the podcast, but they wouldn't remember that I was in Seattle and, and that if they wanted to hire me, they couldn't because they wouldn't know that I was in their town. And so I wanted everyone to understand I'm in Seattle. So if you want to hire me, and in fact, in the very beginning episodes at the end, I would always say, if you're looking for a therapist, email me because I, you know, I might be able to, I might be, I might have spots available in my schedule and, or I might have colleagues that might have spots in their, their schedules as well. Um, now, uh, my practice has been full probably essentially for like, I don't know, five plus years. So that, and also in the beginning, I don't know, in fact, I think it's probably safe to say that I never got a client from the podcast in the beginning, you know, for, for the, when I needed clients in the beginning, I don't think I got a single client. I mean, mostly because no one was listening to the podcast, but Originally, I wanted to call the podcast Psych, Seattle Psych Cast. Seattle Psych Cast. I thought it, I just, because I, I was throwing around all these different names, you know, a Psych Cast. That, kind of, that sounds cool. Psych Cast is like podcast, psychology pod. So, Psych Cast, Seattle Psych Cast. I'm glad I didn't call it that, by the way. But there was someone else who had a, who had some internet thing. It wasn't a podcast, but it was some, I Googled it and, Someone had something called something psychcast, you know, like um, wellness psychcast, and it was like a like a, I think like a webinar thing, and it, it looked very very shoddy. It looked very very small potatoes. And as a courtesy, I I reached out to them and I was like, hey, is it okay if I call my podcast Seattle Psychcast? I'm not in competition with you at all. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm doing a podcast. You're doing a website, and frankly you know, it's pretty different. Yours is called like wellness Psychcast, and mine's called Seattle Psychcast. Is that okay? And they're like, no, you can't call it that. And I just thought that was kind of, I was asking just out of courtesy because I can call it Seattle. They don't have a, they didn't have a trademark on the word Psychcast. Who would anyway? But I didn't want to start the podcast on a bad foot. So I was like, well, what else do I call it? And then I just kind of landed on psychology in Seattle and I never liked it. And actually I never have. <laughs> I think it's kind of a goofy name. The similar thing happens when you name bands, you know, when, when you're naming a band, it's always like, uh, no band name really sounds right. And I think every band always feels that way. Of course, to fans, you're like, oh my God, The Cure, that's an awesome name for a band. But when you think about like how it was developed, <laughs> like one of the times, uh, one of the bands I was in, we were, uh, I remember we were at this Mexican restaurant and we're drinking margaritas and we're, I don't know, 23, 22, and we're trying to come up with this band name. And uh, people are, you know, brainstorming and none of them just, none of them sounded okay. And then the drummer, a really good friend of mine, he, he, he's sort of a goofball and he's like, how about Jerry Mathers and the Hooded Claw? So, and everyone at the table just like, oh my God, that band name is awesome. Jerry Mathers and the Hooded Claw. Yeah, let's call ourselves that. 
If you don't know who Jerry Mathers is, you're not old enough. Uh, he was Leave it to Beaver. And the hooded claw is kind of like a reference to uh, Scooby-Doo. So uh, you had Jerry Mathers and the hooded claw. And I thought, yeah, it is a good name, but it's so long. And one of the things I knew about marketing was you need something to be snappy and not forgettable. You need something to be easy to remember. And Jerry Mathers and the hooded claw People are going to have a hard, even people who hear that name over and over again, they're going to forget it. They're going to not, they're not, they're going to be like, yeah, it's called something, something, Jerry something and a, and a claw or, you know, and I was worried about that because, you know, when you're in your early twenties, you still think you're going to be huge. And I was hoping to be like um, the next Smashing Pumpkins or something, which is ridiculous. But I was soon disabused of that, not soon after being 22 years old. But anyway, uh, mostly because I don't have the talent. (laughs) Um, but I, at that point I thought, okay, the, you know, the band is liking this name. I have to strike fast and hard with another name or else this name is going to stick and I'm not going to be able to override it. Even though I'm the lead singer and kind of the leader of the band, I'm not going to be able to steer this thing from, you know, going off the cliff with this name. And so out of the blue, I just said, Stu. I just said, how about we name our, our band Stu, like S-T-U. And I don't know why I said it, but I, I just thought, okay, it's really short. And it's it's kind of funny because it's like Stu. It's like someone's name. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> why would you name your band Stu? And it, and it you know, they took to it and I rolled with it. And I was like, yeah, you know, Jerry Madison Hood Claw, it's a little long. Stu, you know, short, you know, fits well in a, on a band t-shirt. And then they started brainstorming. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, we could, our first uh, album could be called PID, right? So Stu PID. Or like our second album could be Pendus, Stu Pendus. Anyway. And STU, all, all those letters are uh, sequential in the alphabet, you know, A, B, C, D, A, S, T, U. And, uh, and so I was like, oh, thank God we're called Stu. So my band was called Stu, S T U, for many years. And, uh, yeah, we had band t-shirts and art and all that stuff. And I don't know, I was kind of proud of it, but so naming a podcast, I think is kind of similar naming any podcast. One of my favorite podcasts, too beautiful to live or TBTL. That is a weird name for a podcast. And, and the, the hosts often talk about how the name of that podcast is perhaps a little too convoluted, you know? Um, but psychology in Seattle, I mean, you say it 12 and a half years in a row and, it just ends up becoming a name for something and y'all probably, you know, just have an association with it, but I don't know. Let me know. Uh, do you like the name psychology in Seattle? Do you think it's stupid? It's pretty generic, right? Like there, if I was to, you know, erase everyone's memory and just start over with a new name, I probably wouldn't call it psychology in Seattle. I'd probably call it something like, Oh geez, what would you call it? Some psychology, something because you want that word in there. I might call it like psychology and much more. No, that's stupid. Um, psychology things. That would be psychology things. The psychology thing, the, the all things psychology podcast, all things. So if you're out there, you want to start a po- podcast. I'm, 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 just, I'm just dropping you these gems, okay? The all things psychology, the ATP podcast the at all things psychology podcast uh, i don't know 
and when I try to brainstorm other names, psychology and Seattle just kind of sounds cool. <laughs> it, it, it has a, it has a flow to it. Psychology in Seattle, psychology in Seattle. And I, if, if it's one good thing about the name is I like how the name is associated with my city where I've lived my whole life. Uh, there's something kind of special about that. Anyway, that was a half an hour. You're never going to get back where I ramble about meaningless things. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 